Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Flexible electronics sounds like science fiction, but material scientists are making that science fact. Now, if you want to have a phone that folds up into your hands, or maybe you want to have a flexible device on your skin, what exactly do you need to do to make that a reality? Plus, how do you design semiconductors to be incredibly thin? Maybe you need to use different kinds of materials. All that this and more this week on Flexible Electronics. Now, the smartphone market is one of the most thriving and complicated industries. They face an incredible challenge, and that is to produce seemingly better and better phones each year that somehow make the screens bigger but the cost not too exorbitantly expensive and make them resilient enough so that people don't break them on the first time they use it. They have the challenges of trying to improve battery life because now these large screens need an awful lot of power to power them and people don't want to charge their phone or any more than really at most once a day. So the engineering of smartphones is an incredibly complicated process where they're trying to find new and innovative ways to get an edge on the competition. There's a lot of money in this industry, and the competition is fierce. But one of the holy grails of smartphones, or tablets, or any other real device, is making it so incredibly thin that, well, you could fold it. Imagine a paper-style phone that you could fold up and unfold when you want to use. That way, the size could literally just tuck into your pocket. Now, that, of course, presents an awful lot of challenges. None the least of which is trying to make a screen that you can fold. A flexible piece of circuitry that can also display and show you all your videos or all your apps that you want to play with. And researchers from the Australian National University, ANU, have been trying to tackle this problem from an interesting approach. They're turning to not so much silicon materials, but rather an approach that they're taking organic materials and trying to make really nice and powerful screens using them. Which is a good idea if you want to cut down on pesky things like electronic waste or e-waste. You know, Australia alone produces 200,000 tonnes of e-waste each year. And only 4% of that is recycled. But if you started to use, well, let's say, organic materials as part of your process in making a phone, and if some of that material as organic materials, it means it could be more easily recycled. And hey, more equally recycled material also means not only now do you have a flexible phone, but you also have one that you can recycle. Sound good so far? Well, what exactly have these researchers done? Now, this research was led by Associate Professor Larry Liu from the ANU's Research School of Engineering and assisted by Anka Shuama, who not only is a PhD researcher, but the recent winner of ANU's three-minute thesis competition with, of course, supporting researchers like Lingnong Zhang. Now, at its core, what this research team has developed is a semiconductor made of organic and inorganic materials. Now, it can convert electricity into light very, very efficiently. And importantly, it's incredibly thin. Thin enough that it can actually be flexible. And flexible enough, hopefully, to make it be able to be in a mobile phone as a bendable device. And that all relies on a pretty interesting concept. It's called ultra-thin electronics. And you need to make something that has excellent semiconducting properties. 
And the only way that these researchers found to do that was using a combination of organic materials and inorganic materials, all blended together. And that's pretty important. Because traditional semiconductors use mostly inorganic materials as their basis, uh, typically things like silicon. And they're good, but if you want to make it a little bit more efficient, and in this case, much more efficient than traditional silicon semiconductors in generating light, that's what these researchers introduced some organic materials into the process to give it a bit of a boost. But not only did it give it an efficiency boost, it also gave it a flexibility boost. Now, the light emitted by this inorganic organic hybrid material is actually very, very sharp, which means you can use it in a high resolution display. That is a must-have feature for a modern smartphone. The other must-have feature is to be ultra-thin. And to make this material ultra-thin, the research team actually grew it in a process called chemical vapor deposition. Now, chemical vapor deposition is typically used in the semiconductor industry to apply a one atom or somewhat more thick coating to a material. And that is incredibly thin layer of coating. It does this by using a vacuum and having two electrode plates and your substrate material you're going to coat and then ejecting this gas through that, forming a plasma in terms of heating and then pumping out all the extra stuff that you don't need. What you get left behind is this incredibly thin coating on the material you want. And that is how the material scientists here actually grew their organic semiconductor, molecule by molecule, layer by pumped layer onto this property. And that's pretty incredible. And the benefit of being able to achieve such a thin semiconductor and screen is that you could actually make it very, very flexible. The actual lattice making up this structure is actually reasonably rigid enough to make it into a good surface, but can have a bit of play in it, which means you can bend it. So they've optimized the optoelectronic and electrical properties of it to basically show that it could be used as a future semiconductor component. It's not going to be the entirety of your phone, but for a screen, it's particularly powerful. Now, trying to scale up this deposition process, this CVD, chemical vapor deposition, to commercial scale will take a bit of time. But they're working with partners to try and do it. And it shows you some groundbreaking research from the Australian National University on trying to crack that tough egg of how to make electronics flexible and also powerful. From researchers making a semiconductor made of organic and inorganic material that's flexible and great at producing light, we're going to turn to a bunch of researchers working hard in Boston at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, who've been working under the instruction of Associate Professor Jiwan Kim about finding a way to make, well, new kinds of semiconductors. But out of what? Well, forgetting the old paradigm of using primarily silicon, they found a methodology of making semiconductors out of, well, any two paired materials you could possibly think of, as long as they meet the certain matching requirements for the pair. 
And this is the idea behind it is to open up semiconductor fabrication to a whole bunch of different kind of low cost materials that you could possibly think of. Now at the moment, the vast majority of pretty much all circuits that you see are made out of silicon as a base. And that's because, well, silicon is the second most abundant material on earth. Well, after oxygen, but you can make the argument that their oxygen is not on earth. Anyway, silicon is found in all kinds of different forms, in rocks, clay, sand, and soil. But the problem is, whilst it's common and readily available, it sometimes isn't the best semiconducting material. I mean, it's easy to produce semiconductors with it, and that's one of the reasons why a lot of our circuitry is based off it. But that's more a legacy of the fact that we haven't found necessarily efficient ways to make semiconductors out of other materials. But researchers at MIT have found a way to actually use a whole bunch of exotic materials to produce semiconductors. Things like gallium nitride, lithium fluoride, all that kinds of weird material combinations that are a lot better performers than silicon, but up until now have just been way too expensive to ever think about using when you want to make low-cost cheap circuits. Now, the technique developed by these researchers is actually incredibly cost-effective and simple, and it's also incredibly thin. Another really thin style way of fabricating circuitry, and that makes it perfect for low-cost and flexible circuitry. That, of course, is what you may need for a flexible foam. So what exactly did Professor Jihan Kim's team actually get into? Well, the results of this paper is all published in Nature's Materials Journal, and it builds on research from early in 2017 where Kim outlined a way to actually produce a copy of an... It all builds on work in 2017 by Professor Kim when he outlined, along with his colleagues, a way to produce copies of expensive semiconductor materials using graphene. Now, the graphene, in this case, is a form of carbon arranged in a certain pattern, a hexagonal shape, like a chicken wire pattern. And making a graphene layer one atom thick, so incredibly thin graphene wafer, they could actually then use that and put it on top of a pure, inexpensive vapor of a semiconducting material. Not silicon, but let's say something else like gallium arsenide. Now, what you're actually doing is using almost like a transfer mechanism, a print-on or iron-on transfer. The graphene layer is acting like the transfer material, and you apply your wafer of semiconducting material, in this case gallium arsenide, to the graphene layer. Now, the graphene layer basically acts as an intermediary and helps promote all of the atoms on the gallium and arsenide to flow over and, and interact with each other, building uh, a pretty interesting little etched out circuit that you actually wanted to have, making the doped semiconductor that you're trying to achieve. Then, once it's sort of locked in that structure, the one that's sort of built into that graphene layer, then you can just peel off the graphene layer, and you're left now behind with the semiconductor built into the way you wanted it. The print-on transfer, if you want to think of it another way, on the graphene layer is now left behind on the original semiconductor you put underneath. You've put on the sticker of graphene, you let it, you let the atoms and the ions flow through from the gallium to the arsenide and back, etch out the right shape, and then you just peel off the graphene. And you're left behind now with a copy of the thing you were trying to make. That mechanism is called remote epitaxy. And it's a pretty affordable and simple way to fabricate 
multiple films of gallium and arsenide using just one underlying wafer, this one copying mechanism. And that is pretty great. Now, once these researchers figured out they could do that, they wondered, well, what else can we do? Does it just work for gallium and arsenide or does it work for other semiconducting materials? And they tried and experimented. They tried it with silicon. They tried it with germanium, two other inexpensive semiconductors. But what they found is that whilst the atoms could flow through the graphene, they didn't really interact in the underlying layer in the same way. The graphene sort of, instead of acting like a transparent transfer film, just suddenly became opaque and blocked everything, prevented the silicon and the germanium from seeing each other on the other side. So that wasn't particularly useful. And interestingly, when you look at the periodic table, you'll notice one something pretty straightforward. Silicon and germanium are both in the same group, the same column in the periodic table. And that means they are ionically neutral when compared to each other. They have the same number of electrons and neutrons, so they have no polarity compared to each other. And that is interesting. Gallium and arsenide actually do have an ionic difference between them, so you get some charge. But when you tried it with silicon and germanium, it doesn't work because they're neutral compared to each other. So the team reasoned, well, maybe that points us to be only able to achieve this if there's some difference between the materials. That enables the electrons actually to have some transfer and flow through the graphene. Now, in the case of gallium arsenide, well, gallium has a negative charge and the arsenic has a positive charge, so you get some difference, some polarity across it. And now, with that in mind, they started hunting for a whole variety of different charged but opposite paired materials that they could pair together and test out. Another one that they tried was highly polarized lithium fluoride. Now, lithium fluoride is more expensive for semiconductor than silicon, but it is a lot more powerful and efficient. So they tried it with that, and well, yes, as you would expect, since they are opposite the match, it actually works. And not only that, because lithium fluoride is actually a stronger and more powerful bond, you actually can do it through layer and layer and layer of graphene, not just a single one atom thick. They're able to produce flexible and really uh, electronics that were merely 10 to hundreds of nanometers thick. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, but when you compare it to just doing it with a one atom thick layer, that's pretty incredible. So now, Professor Kim's researchers have basically figured out the rule book. They can look at a pyrrhic table, pick two elements of opposite charge, and make sure that they have enough of the material to make a main wafer of those elements. They can then just use this copying method with graphene to produce exact copies of the original circuit. That is incredibly powerful as a technique. Because at the moment, whilst silicon wafers are great because they're cheap, this would help us find new materials that we could use that aren't silicon, that maybe have better performance, and that maybe aren't cheap right now, but with a bit of investment, could be scaled up and become just as cheap and more powerful than silicon. Because you can just re keep reusing this method and copying over and over and over and over again. So now the library for available materials for semiconductors radically expands. And the epitaxy method can be used to fabricate incredibly, incredibly thin materials thin and powerful materials, which is exactly what you need for flexible semiconductors. If you want to make a cell phone that maybe not just as flexible and bendable, but one that could attach to your skin and deal with all kinds of motion and movement there, or a wearable sensor, this is what the kind of techniques you'll need to actually develop 
materials for those applications. So this is some great work being done out of MIT, of course supported by the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA, as well as the Air Force Research Laboratory, LG Electronics, and a number of other research groups. But it shows the power of taking a new approach to semiconductor design. Not just thinking about what materials we have right now, but really trying to find why we have those materials and if any better combinations exist out there. Some great work published in the journal Nature Materials. Well, taking that concept of flexible and thin circuitry to a whole other level, researchers at Purdue University have just recently published in the ACS, American Chemical Society's Applied Materials and Interfaces Journal, about a new mechanism, paper-based mechanism, for building electronics. Now, this technique they call EPDs, which stands for Epidermal Paper-Based Electronics. Fancy name, but basically means paper-based stickers you can put on your skin that can, well, act like circuits. And this is for useful for a number of reasons. If you are a doctor and you're in a hospital, one of the things you'd put onto your patients to monitor them and understand their performance is the ECG, the echocardiogram. And if you've seen any medical drama, you know that little beeping sound and that line, yeah, that's what we're talking about here. But to get that signal, you have to actually mount some sensors to somebody's skin and, well, monitor them. Now, the problem is that can be annoying and complicated and difficult. And if you want to monitor inside the body on an organ, that's even harder because you have to stitch up the person. So actually getting readings right from this interior part of after an organ transplant, let's say, is incredibly difficult. So these researchers at Purdue University were looking for a way to actually be able to make, well, a kind of sticker that you could not only put on your skin on the outside, epidermal, but also that you could put inside and attach directly to organs. And the material they turn to for this is cellulose. It's pretty smart to use cellulose as the basis for these smart stickers because cellulose is biocompatible, which means that it doesn't have any negative interaction with your body. Incredibly important in the case of any type of implant. And it's also breathable, meaning you can pass water and air through it. Now, interestingly, to prevent it from degrading and dissolving right in front of your eyes, they had to coat it with, well a thin layer of a hydrophobic material. And this gives it the ability to repel water, repel oil and dust, but importantly also repel bacteria. Now making it even safer to basically have attached to your body in a hospital because anything you can do to prevent the buildup of biofilms is incredibly important. Now the method of manufacturing is also pretty low cost. To make this smart sensor, basically all they took was something that costs about a cent. Now, that's insane when you think about it in terms of mass sensor production. It's incredibly low cost, and it can be made using traditional large-scale manufacturing techniques. So now you have a disposable, wearable sensor that, for healthcare applications, is incredibly important. And that's why researchers like Behem Sadri, Debicalpa Gosami, and Marina de Sala de Medieros, research team leader Ramirez Martinez, have been working really, really hard to try and find ways to make these low-cost and importantly, safe to and easy to use sensors. Because now they could serve as the basis for all kinds of real-time monitoring, but not 
only for those who go to the most expensive and the most powerful hospitals. This could be rolled out on a wide scale. Athletes could even use it to monitor themselves while they're exercising and even swimming. And these kind of smart centers are really the forefront of flexible electronics. This is some great research from Purdue University. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. We found out about ways to make flexible electronics from using celluloid space to all kinds of different combinations in the periodic table and ways to get flexible and really powerful screens on smartphones. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.